Well, I want to welcome you again. I'm glad you're here. Today is a, a, a special day. i got to confess up front, since many of you already know, today's my birthday. And, uh, yeah. no, and, and a lot of you know that uh, I'm an identical twin. So usually this day always starts the same way. I usually send a text to my twin brother saying, I'm so grateful for you. It's great that God thought I was so important that I needed some backup parts. <laughs> And he usually texts, texts back and says, I'm so grateful that God made me so great that even the placenta walked away and has met with some success. <laughs> but I, it's actually a special day in here as well because we're, we're uh, wrapping up the sermon series that we've been doing for the last five weeks. And um, we've been talking about relationships, but really the gist of what we've been doing is talking about how do we incorporate more of God's love and teaching about love into our lives in a way that will bless all the relationships that we're involved in. That, that's what we've been trying to do and working on. And, and if you weren't here for all of it, I encourage you to go back and, and check them out on the web. But we started out by talking about how everything is about love, that our chief aim is love. And then the next week we talked about how if we're sort of apprentices, that the best example and model for all this is to look at how Jesus loves. And look at how he loves and loves and loves and then try to take that into our own lives and what we do. And then we started turning and started getting practical on some things. We talked on week three about how to love with words. And then last time we talked about dealing with anger because it's so destructive in our relationships and talking about how to turn that. And today I want to finish by picking just one verse of the Bible to focus on. And the truth is, we're going to spend the whole time on this one verse, but we're really only going to spend three-fourths of what it says. We're going to look at three-fourths of this one verse. It's 1 Corinthians 13.5, and it's a verse you've heard lots because it's read at almost every single wedding, right? It's part of the great love chapter. But we've heard it so much, I wonder if we really stopped to listen to it. And it's certainly... We're not able to preach about it during weddings because everybody's just like, come on, come on, come on. We got reception and things to go. And we're not going to stop and have a long sermon about 1 Corinthians 13 in the middle of all this. But the, the first part of this, um, let me just read the passage to you as we look at it. And we're going to unpack, I said, about three-fourths of it. But this is what it says. It says, love is not rude. It does not demand its own way. It's not irritable. And it keeps no record of being wrong. There is a lot in that passage. And I want to suggest that that passage is maybe like the main passage that we look at when we deal with really difficult people, when we deal with the hard situations, when we deal with the You know, everybody, I think, has a person at work that nobody wants to go to lunch with. But you're called to be in a relationship with them. You sort of dread when you have to call them or you have to do something with them. There's that person, that are, they're just difficult. They're, they're almost never pleased. That's one of the people I have. And then we, we deal with people who are demanding. Life is about them. The world centers around them. They want what they want, those demanding people. And then the one that we um, sort of titled today's sermon after um, are the people who've been destructive. Whether this is an ongoing thing, whether it's somebody we love, but they, they oftentimes continue to hurt us, or whether it's the one person who gave us this big wallop in the past that still haunts us. I want to talk about how we love in that situation, right? So all of these together. And I think this is the verse that, um, if we talked about this on week one. I don't know if you guys ever 
commit to memorizing a verse, but this would be another one maybe for the week to write it down on a card and put it by the sink when you're brushing your teeth and just look at this verse and think about all the parts of it and what it means to try to love people the way this passage talks about it. And the first one of these, if we're looking at sort of the menu of this, is it says love is not rude. And the beginning place for us is to acknowledge that when we deal with challenging people or challenging situations or even hurts that are thrown our way, whatever we're going to do back to, the, to these folks, it's not going to be rude. That we're not going to embrace that. We're not going to be rude back to them, we're gonna, which means ultimately we're going to be tactful. And we're going to try to love them back in some way that's helpful. And I don't know, we could probably stop here and have a whole hour-long conversation about how do you love somebody difficult without being rude back to them and make them feel some element of love even though they're challenging. One of those ways, I think, is by listening really well to them. And I will confess, I think all of us challenge on this, I'll say up front, but I know I do. Because my, my brain sits there and I think, oh, I know what they're going to say. And, I, and I'll sometimes interrupt. And I have to really stop and think about it, you know. And if, if it's bad enough, you have, you've ever done this, you have to have the, the speaking thing where whoever's got the thing gets to have the floor. So you're not trying to think. You're just whoever's, that's the person that's speaking. You can't say a word otherwise. But, but this idea of really listening to somebody helps them feel loved. They can be the hardest person in the world, but if you try to listen to what they're saying and get behind it, it's extremely helpful. And we hear some of that in um, Scripture. Our first reading today, um, Stuart did a great job, but it, it's from the message, which is a very casual, you know, contemporary translation, maybe paraphrase. But um, I'm going to read from Proverbs 18 in the same translation. He says, answering before listening is both stupid and rude. If we're not going to be rude, we want to listen all the way through before we're trying to respond. And how much balm that is to our wounds, just to be, to, know, to, to be heard and know you're heard, right? I was thinking about that this week, and I was reading uh, the current edition of Time Magazine that's out, and there was a, uh, an interesting article in there about this program that started in Zimbabwe, and now is expanding throughout Africa, and some people are saying it's in time that it's going to expand to other places in the world, but it, but it has to do with the situation they face there, because Zimbabwe has 16.5 million people in the country and they have 12 psychiatrists for the whole country. And one of those psychiatrists um, was very distraught about the mental health in the, in the country and this, this, this huge gap. And he goes into some really pointed stories about how this came about. But he decided he was going to try to develop um, an informal network of therapists to try to help people. And, and he ended up saying this. This is a quote. He said, suddenly it dawned on me that one of the most reliable sources we have in Africa is grandmothers. And he goes on to say that um, as they were working to try to train up these informal therapists, that they learned that grandmothers were good at listening and then trying to direct people. And he said the problem with everybody else is they just want to direct people where they're going. <laughs> this ability to listen and how important it is, because I think that's a major way that we can love anybody. Because the more you know what's going on in their world, the more we get behind them, the more we're able to love them, even if that's all there is to it, right? There are two other things I would say about loving in this passage, about not being rude. One of which is to think about our tone. Because our temptation, I think, when somebody is rude to us, at least for me, is to immediately respond in the same way. To give them back. If they're angry, I give them back anger. If they're 
given me some attitude, it's a give back attitude. But if we can stop and give them a loving tone, something that says something completely different than where they're coming from, I think it, it changes them. And along with that, I think we, we've just got to admit attacking somebody in that situation is completely not effective, right? I thought, you know, there's not much I want to say that's optimistic or helpful from the last presidential cycle of elections. But one of the things that did catch my eye last time was, um, and I don't know if they do this every time or not, or it was just last time, but they had, during the debates, they had uh, one of the networks or research groups had a focus group that were all sitting there with these handheld monitors where in, live, in real time they would sit there and they would keep tapping every couple seconds about how they were rating things. And the one of the walkaways from that was every time a candidate stood up and attacked somebody else, the, rating, they, the ratings dropped for that person, right? Nobody likes to be attacked. We don't like watching it. We don't like seeing it. It's just a negative thing. And so the, the things would drop. And I think it's the same thing with us, right? Somebody's giving us some, something back that's rude. We don't want to come back with that same tone because they're not going to hear it. It's not going to be helpful. And if we're trying to love with God's love, we're going to try to give something, something more positive than that, right? Which leads me to the last thing that I want to say about this, this thing about um, not being rude. Love is never rude. And that is ultimately to bring us back to the most important doctrine in all of Christianity, grace. And there are lots of ways that people define grace because we're, we're, we function by grace. We live by grace. We're meant to be a community of grace. And, the, and my favorite definition of grace is that we give people to, to practice grace is to give people better than they deserve. And it's ultimately recognizing that God gives us better than we deserve. If we're just trying to be fair, we don't want to be just fair with God. We're in, we're in a bad way. He, it's better than that. God gives us better than we deserve. And so when people are rude to us, we don't answer in kind. We try to answer better than what they gave us. And that's the heart of it all. And, and I think ultimately in this broken world, if we can give something better than's deserved, we can give grace into the brokenness. If everybody does that, if every Christian does that, it changes the world. And there are all kinds of examples. You don't necessarily have to be a Christian because I don't even know if the story I'm going to tell if the guys are Christian or not. But, but I can tell you this was an act of grace. I was reading recently about um, one of the comedians that's out there. Um, some of y'all will know Patton Oswalt. I think he did the voice of Ratatouille and some other. He's a stand-up comedian and actor. But he, um, not long back, he was tweeting, and he, he, he does a lot of satire in his comedy. Well, he chose to tweet some satire towards our president. And apparently one of his followers, a guy named Michael Beatty, um, was, is a big Trump fan. And when he saw this satirical tweet, responded extremely negatively, attacked him, said all these things, and did all this. And um, Patton Oswalt wrote back, and uh, he did this. He, he went back and looked at that guy's, um, all of his different posts that he'd done. And then he put this out. He said this. He said, oh, man, this dude just attacked me on Twitter, and I joked back, but then I looked at his timeline, and he's in a lot of trouble health-wise. He's been dealt some terrible cards. Let's deal him some good ones. Click and donate, just like I'm about to do. And he put out this link, that which was to a GoFundMe. And like in the course of just a little bit of time, they raised like 20 grand or something for this guy who's got diabetes, who, who has um, ketoacidosis or whatever. Somebody correct me on that. 
and all these different medical conditions that he has. And the way this guy, Michael Beatty, responded after that, I think speaks to how this changes people, right? He wrote back and said this, you've humbled me to the point where I can barely compose my words. You've caused me to take pause and reflect on how harmful words from my mouth could result in such an outpouring. This idea that giving grace back changes things. I believe that. And this passage tells us love is never rude. So however we're going to respond to our difficult people, it's not going to be rude. I'm going to propose that we make it grace. The second part of this passage, we keep unpacking this 1 Corinthians 13, 5, is the part of the verse that says love is not demanding. It doesn't demand on its own way. And ultimately, this passage is saying that if we're going to be people known for love, we're not going to be selfish and all about us. The agenda is not about me. And the greatest example of this, of course, is Jesus, right? And, and by a long shot. And you may know this, but there's a passage in Scripture. You know you're getting to a famous passage of Scripture when it has its own name. Theologians have given this one passage in, in, from Philippians its own name. It's called the Kenosis. And it's this passage about how Jesus is on par with God the Father and empties himself completely to take on humanity and to be found in human form. He stays in human form and ultimately dies a human, and not just dies, but dies the most ignoble death that there is, crucifixion on the cross. And that's the example that we have. That's the example that models for us humility and what it means. So, so we're not about our own selfishness. We're meant to look at Jesus and how he's not selfish and em emptied himself, this great emptying that takes place, even dying on the cross for us. And, and as we engage that and have that kind of humility, I think what it calls us ultimately to do is to see the dignity of every person. And when we see the dignity of every person, if we can humble ourselves to see everyone, it'll change how we interact with them, even the difficult people. And I think probably no greater challenge of that maybe is for the people who serve us or who work sort of underneath us in the hierarchy. If you can see... They're, how they're equal in God's eyes and love and dignity, it'll change how we react in that. Now, I want to keep a run going. The last two sermons in a row, I've, I've read something from Philip Yancey because I've just finished one of his books that, that I just loved. But Philip Yancey talks about one of his early jobs in life was he was working at a Christian magazine. And he tells a story about how they had this voluntary prayer meeting that they did um, in the morning an hour before work. For those who wanted, from 7 to 8, they would meet and pray before work. And he talks about what this did for them, ultimately, in seeing the dignity of other, of other people. Let me, let me read what Philip Yancey says. He says, Over time, though the handful of us who met learned each other's secrets, we got to know each other's stories, including the colorful family members and the private pains and struggles. And then after praying about each of the specifics of those, of those lives, we would join together in the combined task of putting out a magazine. He goes on to say this, though. You treat a typist differently during the day when I found after listening to her describe her self-image problems. And praying with her that morning changes things. He goes on to say, you're less likely to judge a computer programmer for his irritating mistake when you hear how deeply that mistake affected him. In short, you begin to see fellow workers not as cogs in a machine, 
but as human beings graced and loved by God. That hour in the morning brought us together in a new kind of order, not one based on ranking and salary, but as men and women with hopes and longings, fears and struggles, dreams and devastations. It brought us together in the orbit of God's searing love. This idea that the more we can see the dignity and enter into other people's lives that way, the more we can love them, even when they're difficult. If you know something of what's behind the difficulty that they're facing and what's going on. Um, the final thing that I want to talk about today um, out of this passage, I'm going to skip the irritable part, but I want to go to the final part, is that love keeps no record of wrongs. And the beginning place for this is just to pause and, and acknowledge that all of us in this room have been wronged. All of us in this room have got hurts. All of us. I know this. And one of the most powerful moments I've ever been to, I went to this huge um, conference slash retreat one time, and the, the speaker did something I'd never seen done before. I'm still kind of, years later, still kind of meditating on it at times. But he had this moment where he asked everybody in the room to stop and think about your biggest wounds, your biggest hurts in life. For a few, for, we did this for a couple minutes. And then they sort of lowered the lights. He had everybody stand up. They, had, they literally, I'm not joking, they literally had the kids in the room leave the room. And then they invited everybody to vocalize the pain. They invited everybody in the room to scream, make noise, do whatever with it. And that is burned in my memory because it was over a thousand people in the room. And they were all standing up doing this. And it was a reminder to me of how deep, if we stop and think about it, how deep every one of us have been wounded by something in life. And part of this question that we have to ask is if God's calling us to love the way he does and to be a net giver of love in the world, how do we love the people who've hurt us or the people who are going, ongoing and hurting us? And that's what I want to turn to in this final part of what we're looking at. And the, the first part of that, I think, ultimately is to come back to this passage that's saying love keeps no record of wrongs. And in some appropriate way, we're meant to let go of these hurts. And there's, a, there's like a whole sermon series on this. So forgive me that I'm going to just hit some of the highlights today. But I think part of that is of letting it go is that we're, we're going to stop recalling it and remembering it and replaying it in our minds. That we're not going to sit there because it's real tempting. I've done it. Probably a lot of us have done it. Where somebody's wronged us and you just keep thinking, oh, I can't believe they did that. You know, they, they did this and they did that. I still got this knife in the back. And, this, and you keep playing and you keep thinking about all they did. And all you're doing is fueling more anger and resentment. It goes nowhere. Part of letting go says, we're going to stop playing that tape. We're just going to take that tape out and throw it in the fireplace. We're going to be done with that tape. And we're going to learn to stop that mental process of just of killing us on that every time it comes up. Leviticus 19 says that in a way. It says, don't secretly hate your neighbor. If you have something against him, get it out in the open. Otherwise, you're an accomplice to his guilt. Don't sit there in quiet and just keep replaying stuff. Deal with it and face it. Let it go. Move on. I think along with that, and there's another passage I'll quote in a minute, but along with that, um, this is sort of relationship 101 kind of a thing, but don't weaponize it. The last thing you ever want to do, and I assume if, you, if those of you who are married in the room had pre-marriage counseling, you got this, but you don't hold on to these memories of some painful thing, that even if they acknowledge that it was wrong, 
and put it back in your arsenal for the next fight where you say, well, do you remember the time you did such and such? Don't weaponize it. Don't bring it back up in fights. Leave it somewhere. Bury it. Let it go. Don't ever bring it up again that way. Proverbs 17 says, Overlook an offense and a bond and bond a friendship. Fasten on to a slight and goodbye friend. That's obviously the message translation. <laughs> the final part about this aspect of it um, in terms of letting it go um, when we're trying to, to not remember it is don't repeat it. And this part for me maybe is the bigger of these three struggles, but it's we, we said before that like one of the greatest desires in life is to be loved and accepted. So sometimes when we've been wronged, our big temptation is to then go around and repeat it and say, let me tell you what this person did to me. Because ultimately I want you to, to tell me that I'm okay, I'm in the right, and that you love me. I'm trying to, I'm trying to get you to dislike them and do all this. It's just ultimately not helpful. Let it go. Let it go. Don't run around doing that. If you need to do something with it, bring it to God. Do something constructive with it, something helpful with it. Because at the end of the day, I think God does care about us. He does want us to let go of that stuff. You know, we think about the Lord's Prayer where it calls us to forgive others as part of our own forgiveness. And Scripture talks about that in other places as well. You think about Mark 11 where it says, Whenever you stand praying, if you have anything against anyone... Forgive him and let it drop. Leave it. Let it go. In order that your Father who's in heaven may also forgive your own failings and shortcomings and let them drop. They, you don't want, you're not asking God to do something that you're not participating in in your own life. Let it drop. Asking him to let the things we do drop. Again, as I said before, I feel, I feel a little bad right here because I feel like this, this is like a whole sermon, this piece. But I just want to hit the highlights today. We're not saying ignore it. We've got to face it. We've got to deal with it. But don't keep holding on to it. Let it go. Let it go. I want to end with something. You know, one of the things, uh, I'm a lifelong Episcopalian, but one of the things I wish we would do in the Episcopal Church that other churches do sometimes, I just wish every now and then we would have more of us stand up and tell stories about how God has impacted us. Because there's something so deeply uh, impactful for us if we hear other people give witness and testimony about how God's changed me through this and how, you know, I finally let go of this and, man, I found this flood of grace that came back and all these different stories that we hear, how powerful they are in our lives. I wish we would do more of that. Lots of churches do that. Maybe, maybe they go too far the other way. I don't know. We, we practice these ancient rites, but I recently read um, a testimony given like this in, in another church and it was a story of this woman who married really young and she found herself in a marriage with a husband that was habitually unfaithful, who became an alcoholic, who did all this stuff, and she's 30 years on, and she's finally like, I'm done. He did one final thing that broke the camel's back. And right before they were separating, they went, they went to church on Easter because somebody invited them, and there was just enough of something they experienced there where they felt some kind of love that they came back. And pause that for a second. That's what I pray we do. I pray when if somebody visits who's not a, not a Christian, doesn't know anything about Christ, that we practice hospitality in a way where they experience something of that greeting and that love and that warmth that says, I, okay, I don't know about anything, but I felt something, I'm coming back. That's what happened with them. They came back, and they came back, and they learned about something about grace and forgiveness and healing and 
this idea that long-term healing is in the church, and it kept going, and it radically changed them. And I'm going to read what she said. I'm going to end with this. Um, this woman's name was um, Elaine, and she says, Sometimes I'm asked, how were you able to forgive 28 years of shame, grief, and pain? It's easy to forgive when you remember what it cost Jesus Christ so that I can be forgiven. He sacrificed his life for me. His love is so powerful. Can God bring good out of bad? Can God bring healing to the hurts of betrayal and unfaithfulness and alcoholism and shame and bitterness and hopelessness and broken relationships? Yes. Absolutely yes. But you must do your part. You must accept and receive Christ's love and forgiveness for yourself so that you'll have the power to offer forgiveness to others. I've chosen to no longer live in the past, but to look to the future. And I'm excited to experience what God has in store for me. Let's pray.